Well, amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 44. The prophet Isaiah chapter 44. As we think about today, eclipsing God with the idols of life. Eclipsing God with the idols of life. You know, one of the most dangerous challenges in a Christian's life is idolatry. One of the greatest challenges in a church's life is idolatry. Now, we don't think a lot about idolatry today, but as you'll see in a minute, the Bible talks a lot about idolatry. It talks about the, the problems of idolatry that come in a person's life. Now, on your screen there, you, you see a picture. I don't use a lot of audiovisuals. This is my only visual of the day. But as you look at that, you recognize that immediately, don't you? What is that? An eclipse, a solar eclipse, the eclipse of the sun. And, and when that takes place, everybody gets all excited. You know, I remember in 2017, right here, uh, we gathered out back, a bunch of us, out by the pavilion, and, and we had our little glasses that we put on, and we had all sorts of pinhole things, and we, we, we got excited because it was about to be an eclipse of the sun. We hadn't seen one in a long time, and they're kind of a neat phenomena to observe. When you look at that, you realize when that happens, the earth darkens. And, and in the early days, it, a lot of people thought that the sun was going out. Some of the primitive tribes thought the, the world is coming to an end because the sun, which gives us light, has now been vanquished. It's been put out, and there's no heat, and there's no light to be had. But we know now in our scientific age that that's not what happens at all. But instead, what happens now is the moon, which is just exponentially smaller than the sun, but a lot closer to earth, the moon in its orbit around the earth, and as we orbit around the sun, the, the exact location comes and lining up comes, and the moon gets between us and the sun, and all of a sudden you can't see the sun, at least only a rim of it perhaps, and sometimes not even that much. And we, and we think, well, what has happened to the sun? I, I would ask you this morning, just rhetorically, has the sun lost any of its power? No. Has the sun lost any of its radiance? No. But can we see the sun's power and sun's radiance when there's a total eclipse like that? And the answer is no, we can't see it, but it's still there. The, the sun has lost absolutely nothing when an eclipse takes place. Same is true of God. When we allow idols in our lives or idols in our churches to eclipse the glory and the beauty and the radiance and the power of God, we must realize that God has lost none of his power, none of his attributes, none of his glory. But yet, for whatever reason, we have allowed things to come between us and God to the point where now we don't see him quite as clearly as we did. We don't understand his presence quite as clearly as we did. And because of that, we find ourselves floundering. We found ourselves being swamped by culture. We find ourselves being swamped by the latest fad of the day or the latest idea of the day. And, and all of a sudden, God loses some, some of his importance in our lives. I want you to hear what Isaiah has to say about idols and about God. Follow along, if you will, as I start reading in Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? 
Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Now, before we go on in that passage and get into the whole part about idols that Isaiah reflects from God's Word and God's words to us and to those people in that day, I want you to see the, the stage that Isaiah is setting. We have just set that stage through our singing this morning. The same thing he's saying there, we sang about this morning. We, we sang about uh, things like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We, we sang about uh, immortal, invisible God only wise. We, we sang about, is he worthy? And we answered that with a resounding, he is. Several people said this morning, they saw some of the songs were being sung. They said, well, we should have known you were preaching today because of the songs were being sung. And I, I said very quickly, I only chose one song to be sung today, and we haven't sung that yet. We're going to close with it. But Scott kind of knows me a little bit. And he knew the direction I was going, that we wanted to focus on the glory of God. We wanted to focus upon his magnificence, upon his power, upon his holiness. Because, folks, it's only as we come into the holiness of God and see that holiness and acknowledge that holiness and bow before that holy God that we will be transformed into what God has called us to be. It's only as we see him as he is in all his splendor, in all his glory, that we will be able to walk with him and know him and fellowship with him in a very real and very positive way every day that we live. And yet we are sinners. And yet we let things get in the way. We let the, the matters of life kind of crowd in and, and blind us of that glory that is there. And when we do that, we suffer. Isaiah says, this is what the Lord says. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. So if you put any other God in my place, if you put any other thing in your life that is ahead of me, you have chosen a no God. You have chosen a nothing. Because that's exactly what idols are. They are absolutely, completely nothing. Os Guinness in his book on uh, no God but God said, idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible and one of the most powerful spiritual and intellectual concepts in the believer's arsenal. Yet for Christians today, it is one of the least meaningful notions and is surrounded with ironies. Perhaps this is why many evangelicals are ignorant of the idols in their life. Why contemporary evangelicals are are little better at recognizing and resisting idols than are the modern secular people. There can be no believing communities without an unswerving eye to the detection and the destruction of idols. Hear those last words. There can be no believing communities. What is a believing community? It's a church. It's God's people gathered together. But there can be no solid Believing communities without an unswerving eye to the detection and seeing those idols by detecting them, the destruction of the idols. Now, I know probably what you're thinking. 
you're saying, I don't, I don't have any idols. I don't have any things in my home where I have a little altar or a little uh, shrine of some sort where I go every now and then and bow down and pray to a, a stone statue or a wooden statue or anything. I don't even have a picture of Jesus that I use for worship purposes. I, I may have a, uh, some kind of Americanized picture of Jesus. I, I don't recommend it, but you may have. And, and you might say, but I, but I don't worship that. So I don't have any idols. Folks, idols are those things that are not physical. Idols for the believer today are those things that captivate your life, sometimes without even knowing it. It's letting stuff, that's my favorite theological term. If you've been around Grace for many years, you know that. My favorite theological term is stuff. It's letting stuff or things have a a place of greater importance in your life than is Jesus Christ. John Calvin, the great reformer, said this. He said, the human heart is a factory of idols. The human heart manufactures them. They come from within. They're invisible, but, but the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us from his mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols. Think about that. Every one of us from our mother's womb is an expert at inventing idols. That means we're an expert at letting things get in the way. We're an expert at letting things eclipse God and and the Lord Jesus Christ in our life. We're an expert at making things that are not the main thing, the main thing in our life. It kind of crowds out God and crowds out His glory and crowds out His presence. Let's go on and see what uh, Isaiah says here in verse 9 before I preach the whole sermon without getting what I need to get to. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let let them stand forth. They shall be terrified they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions with it hammers and works at it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line and he marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man. And with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees in the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he warms himself. Then he kindles a fire and he he bakes bread or and, and, and also he makes a god and worships it. So picture that. He cuts down a tree. He, he builds a fire and warms himself. Then he builds a fire and he bakes his bread. And he takes what's left over and he fashions an idol out of it and makes for himself a god. And he worships it. And he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. 
he roasted and is satisfied. And he has warms himself and says, ah, ah, I am warm. I have, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. Now, we read that in the 21st century, and we say, how foolish is that? We would never do anything that way. We would never fashion a, a piece of wood or even a piece of metal and, and bow down before it and, and bow it on the prostrate on the floor, prostrate on the floor and say, hey, you are my God. Please deliver me. That God can't do anything. It can't hear. It can't speak. It can't move. It can't walk. It's just there has no power, nothing meaningful at all. But yet, Isaiah says, and God says through Isaiah, that's exactly what many men do throughout the culture. Now, I want you to understand today, I'm not so much concerned about the culture as I am the church as we're thinking about this. We'll touch on the culture a bit. But we only do that because the culture has not been informed by the Word of God because the church has been silent in too many cases. The church has let idols slip in that keeps their voice quiet. I mean, you know, just read the news today. You see many churches around this country, many leaders around this country who are falling into terrible sins that, that Paul would say aren't even to be counted among the Gentiles. And yet, right there in among the people of God, you have these things. And the world looks at it and says, why should I listen to you? You're no different from me. And Isaiah says, I want you to understand you have created gods, and you have bowed down before them, and they are your God. What does the Bible say in totality about idols? Not just a prophet, although the prophets are filled with it. But think about what the Apostle Paul says in, in Romans chapter 1, when, when Paul comes to the point of describing the fall of humanity, what took place back in the Garden of Eden thousands of years ago, he, he describes it in terms of idolatry. He says in chapter 1 of Romans, he said, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They came to a point, Paul says, Adam and Eve, our, our forefather and foremother, they, they came to this point where they decided, I really want to look out for me. I want to be better. I want to be stronger. I want to worship myself. And, and, and so they exchanged the truth of God as creator and sovereign one for a lie that they could be like him. The law is very clear about idols. As a matter of fact, the, the law begins with a prohibition against idolatry in the first and second commandments. God gave to Moses these words. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not even make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, others on the earth beneath, beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, 
but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, who love me and keep my word. The, the law starts out saying you shall not worship other gods of other, other tribes and other nations. You, shan't, you shall not bring into among your, the people of God those false idols. Don't do it. Now, Israel was guilty of that all through their history, and they suffered for it. But he goes on to say, not only do you not bring in those false gods from other nations, you also are not to kind of craft something to say, this is what I will worship God with. This is my image of God. Because you cannot have an image of God. You cannot visualize the true and the living and the holy God. That's impossible. And God says, since you can't do it, don't even try it. I remember I, when we were building a, a campus in Florida, we built a prayer room and and we had one person who wanted to put this painting that they had done in the prayer. It was a beautiful painting, but, but it was a painting of, of Jesus kneeling in prayer and his conception of it. And he said, I just think if we come into the prayer room and we gaze upon that, we'll be able to pray more effectively. I said, well, if you need that to pray more effectively, then you are an idolater. You don't, you don't pray to a visible image. You pray to the invisible God who rules and reigns forever. And so the psalmist, uh, or the, uh, the law was very clear about that. It didn't equivocate one bit. God shall be God, and there shall be no other. The Psalms spend a lot of time praying against idols. We kind of heard some of it this morning already. Psalm 96, 5 and 6 says, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made, heaven, made the heavens splendor and majesty before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Or Psalm 97, 6 and 7. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. And all the people see his glory. That's, that's, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. You just have to open your eyes and look and see who he is and see what he's done. All worshipers of image are put to shame. He who make he, excuse me, who make their boast in worthless idols, worship him, worship the true God, all you gods. Or Psalm 106 says, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts. They played the whore in their deeds. They were unfaithful to the living God because they played around with false gods and began to offer life sacrifices to these false gods. You go on to Psalm 115 that says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have, no, they have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. What do you think about this? You become like what you worship. You become like whatever it is in your life that takes preeminence, first place. 
You become like that that you focus on. If it's your job, you'll become like your job, even in other relationships. If it's your, your spouse or your mate, you'll, you'll worship them to the point that you become like them and just disregard them because you think you're them and you're more important than they are. They're myriads of things that you can bow down before in this life, and, and because they are false gods, you make them your god, and you become like them. It, it can be your 401K. It can be your savings account. It can be the, the possessions that you can gain and, and whatever you get. If that's your focus, and that's the most important thing in your life, even above the living God, even above the Lord Jesus Christ, then I'm here to tell you that you will become like them and you will perish because of them. You say, wait a minute, Bill. I'm in church every Sunday. I, I, I worship every Sunday. I'm right here. I'm, I'm saying that God is my God. I'm saying that Jesus Christ is my Lord. And that's true. You probably are. But what are you focusing on six other days of the week? Where is your attention during that time? What are your thoughts about him? Are they thoughts of how I can get through this week and then maybe get back to church and get a little recharge or whatever and then face the week again? Or is it a continuous deliverance and continuous dependence upon the God who reigns, upon the sovereign God who is? I intended to start this sermon today by saying, do you believe that God is? And I didn't start there, but you need to think about that. Do you really believe that God is? That he is and was and is to come. That he is the eternal God of all creation. And that he is the only one with absolute rights over what he has created. The prophets made that clear. I won't read any of the other prophets, but Isaiah, this whole part of the book, 44, 45, 46, are lambasting idols. Ezekiel does it. Jeremiah does it, and on and on. But the New Testament also, you, lest you say, well, Bill, you've read the law, you've read the prophets, you, you've read the, the Psalms, and that's all Old Testament stuff. What, what about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament is just as condemning of idols. Paul in Colossians 3, 5 says, Put to death, therefore, that what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, put all that away. When you're caught up in your own self and in what is earthly in you and what you can be and try to, try to become, then that becomes an idol. When you covet what is not yours, uh, whether it's right or whether it's something good or something bad, when you covet that, it is idolatry within your own life. We've already looked at Romans 1 where Paul says that was the the original sin, if you will, seeking to be God himself and, and, and exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Hold on to that thought. That's important. They have exchanged the truth of the living God for a lie. Not exchange the truth of the living God for something that is just not quite as good, not the truth of the living God for something that mm, is, is sort of a gray area. Not, not little white lies. They've exchanged the truth of the living God for a lie. Some translations put it for the lie. 
I think that's important. The lie that the evil one wants to cast upon us, the lie that the evil one wants to say, this is what you deserve, this is what you want to be, be it, no matter what. No matter what God said. But God is the author of absolute truth. Unless the church stand on that reality, unless an individual Christian stand on that reality, we're in serious trouble. So how do I go about identifying idols? Well, I could, I, excuse me, I want to go on, I'll do one more here, uh, John 5, 1 John 5. John says, and we know that the Son of God, that is Jesus Christ, has come and has given us understanding. Remember what he said to the apostles, when I've gone, I'll send the Holy Spirit, and he will remind you of all these things, and he will give you understanding of the truth of Almighty God. John says, and we know the Son of God, Jesus, has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are, and we are in him who is true, and, and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then he closes by saying, little children... Keep yourselves from idols. Little children, focus on him. Focus on what he has said is true and right and good. Focus on him. Don't believe the lie, because if you believe a lie, you have become an idolater. So how do we go about identifying our own idols? Well, as I've already said, Idols are not necessarily bad things. They can be good things that we have just elevated to a place of eclipsing God in our life. Good things that we've allowed to do like the moon does with the sun, just kind of get in the way where we're not seeing his glory, not seeing his radiance, not, not seeing his power in our own lives. I think one of the biggest idols of our day, and it's been delineated pretty clearly by Carl Truman in his book, The The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Great book. But but basically what Carl Truman says, and I think rightly so, is that everything we see going on in our world today, whether it's it's cultural issues, name whichever one you want to name, it all comes down to the rise and the triumph of the modern self. The, the biggest religion in America today, and probably in the whole world today, but I know America as I live here, the biggest religion in the world today is the worship of self. It's the worship of what I want, when I want it, how I want it. I want to be happy, and if it means doing something that God says is not acceptable in order for me to be happy, I'm going to do it because I deserve to be happy. I want to be happy. I want to be wealthy. If I have to cheat somebody out of some money, then... That's their bad. I'm, I've got to have what I want. That's what I want. I want to be happy. I want to be wealthy. I want to be healthy. And the sin of our day, coming out of that idol of self, is that we start to redefine what God has already defined. We want to redefine what God has already clearly defined. Defined. I was reading last week, I came across a, a story of a guy named Richard Sheridan. Richard Sheridan uh, was a member of the House of Commons in London, and, and he was speaking one day at the House of Commons, and he was criticizing another member of the House. 
And this is what he said. Very simply, he said, he stood up and he addressed the gentleman that had spoken. He said, he said things that were both true and new. The only problem is, what was true was not new, and what was new was not true. Now, you're looking at me like a calf looks at a new gate. Let that sink in for just a minute. He said things that were true and new. The only problem was that what he said that was true was not new. And what he said that was new was not true. Can you think of anything that better describes our culture, our country, our lives today than that quote? If it's new, it's exciting, so we grab onto it. That's where the church falls into this. It's really part of the idol of self, but it's the idol of relevance in the church. It's got to be relevant. It's got to be, it's got to be in touch with the culture around us. It's got, to, it's got to speak to where they are and let them see that we're hip, man. We're with them all the way. You know, we, we want to come in and maybe share the gospel covertly, but, but we don't, you know, we, we've got to look like them and, and act like them. Just watch what's happening in denominations around this country. Watch somewhat what's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, we just want to look more like the world. It's clear on a multitude of issues in our culture, but even in the church. We, we come across this redefinition in many ways. We, we come across it with men and women are no longer supposed to have definitions outside of their personal feelings of identity. That's, a, that's a clearly a redefined in Genesis 1.27 where God says, where the Scripture says, and he created them male and female. In his image, he created them male and female. But now we live in a day where it's just vogue and popular to say, well, I, I was born a man, but I now identify as a woman, or I was born a woman, I identify as a man. And, and, and we say, well, that's, some churches are saying, well, let's just go with the flow. Let's be very accepting and honoring of these people when they're violating God's purpose. The family unit now is any, any set of relationships that we please. Again, that's redefining Genesis 2, 24, which says, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and they shall multiply and fill the earth with their offspring. We say, well, a family can be this, can be multitudes, can be friends. Can be what? A family is anything we want it to be. No, a family is what God has defined it to be. The creation of life is not sacred, we say in our culture today, and many in the church are. We must have the right and technology to destroy it. Again, you go back to Genesis 1, 28, or 9, 4 through 7. And you see there that God says, listen, I have breathed life into these people. They are in my image. They are like me, and they are to be honored in every way and in every respect. Marriage is optional and flexible. A friend of mine posted this just this week that he had talked with another friend of his in another denomination who said that they were, they were beginning to consider that palimony, uh, which is multiple mates and multiple spouses, is really not in violation of God's Word. And this denomination is considering 
blessing that and honoring that. One of the big redefinitions in our culture and more and more in the church is that truth is my truth and your truth. What's true for me may not be true for you, and what's true for you may not be true for me. Truth is sort of relative. One of my favorite professors, I, I was able to pastor him and, and, and be his pastor in Florida, Ronald Nash. And Ron Nash used to send him, he'd get to a point like this, and say, in, in our culture, everything's flexible. All truth is flexible. He said, we're just living in a world of relativity. And he'd do this little dance or whatever. He did a lot better than I did. That's kind of where we live. Good and evil are what's right for me. If it's good for my idol of self, then it's good. It's a good thing. It may, may not be what you want. It may even hurt you that I do this. But you really don't matter in this point. I am the one to be worshipped. I am the one to be served. I will do what's right for me. You see the whole environmental and listen, I believe in taking care of the environment, don't get me wrong, but the whole environmental movement that basically as humanity is a cancer on the planet rather than being something that God created to sustain humanity and for us to be stewards of it. You can go on and on. If, you don't, if you're not following the, the latest on the whole animal rights thing, you ought to follow that because it's getting in the church too that, that animals have the same rights as humans and you ought not use animals for certain things, and they have the same rights and respect as humans have, that I have, that you have. I believe animals are really neat. I, I like animals and everything, but let me tell you, Scott is very clear that he created man and woman as the crowning point of his creation. We, sent, we tend to believe that destiny is ours to create. Our destiny is ours to do with whatever we want to do with it. Totally redefining the providence of God himself. Totally redefining it. These are all signs that we are rebelling against our own status as creatures, taking on ourselves the rights that belong only to the creator. The, the rights that belong only to God himself that we have no right to take. Now, personally, we see that happening, and, and in the church, we see that being more and more, if not adopted and accepted, at least winked at, and it starts moving slowly in. But we also see in our day a real movement in progressive Christianity. What is, quote, progressive Christianity? Uh, Doug Grutos, the, the philosopher out of the uh, Denver Seminary, so that progressive Christianity is neither progressive nor Christianity. It's not either. It's, it's, a, it's sort of a hodgepodge of, of little Christianity statements and a, and a hodgepodge of just trying to show that we are better than the last generation and we're, we're, more, we're more hip than the last generation and we're, we understand more than the last generation. But it, it pollutes it and it's no longer Christianity. Michael Kruger wrote a lot about that in his book, The Ten Marks of Progressive, Ten, ten Signs of Progressive Christianity. It's, it's, it's kind of good. If you haven't read it, you ought to. It's about this thick. It won't take you an hour to read it. 
but he goes into things like, you know, Jesus is really a model for living more than an object for worship. Translation, Jesus isn't divine, but he's just a good moral teacher. That has been defined and, and, and contradicted in the Scripture over and over and over again, and yet you see it sliding in now and taking its place. Affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. Translate that. Don't talk about sin. People are basically good. I remember my first six months in Somerset, Kentucky, back in 2004, having somebody come and see me and say, you know, you just don't tell us we're good enough. You need to tell us we're good people. You talk too much about sin. I just open the Bible and tell you what the Bible says, and if I talk about sin, it's because it's there. They said, we really need to be told how good we are. The work of another mark of the work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. Translation Christians should stop being so judgmental. Well, Christians aren't really that judgmental. The scripture is. God is toward that which violates his truth. But we're just ambassadors, we're just spokesmen. And if we do not speak that truth, then God help us. I could go on and on. I won't, I won't go anymore. But you get the idea that, that there's change taking place that is not change for the better, but it's change that just simply clouds, eclipse the truth of the living God. You see, a lot of you don't know me. A lot, some of you may be saying, who is this guy that's up there today anyway? For a long time I preached here. And you, if you know me, you know that I think the most important focus of our church, of any church, is worship. And worship is what really brings us before the throne of God and clears away the eclipse and clears away the stuff and gets us back noticing who he is. And this morning we worshiped holy, 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 immortal, invisible, God only wise. We worshiped by saying, is he worthy? Yes, he is worthy. And he's worthy of our absolute worship and allegiance. And anything and everything that draws us away from that is an idol. Anything that draws us away from seeing that is an idol. One of my favorite quotes about worship was written in the 1800s by William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And this is what Temple's actually wrote it in the early 1900s. He said this, hear this, this is really, really, really important. If you didn't hear anything else, this is what I want you to hear. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God, all our nature, our humanness, our spiritual life, our physical life. It is important that we submit everything to him and say, Lord, what you say is true, and I desire above everything else to be obedient to that. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. 
Worship is to quicken our conscience by the holiness of God. It's to feed the mind with the truth of God. Are you feeding your mind with as much of God's truth as you are the truth that's hitting you on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or the latest soap opera or whatever? Are you feeding yourself with the truth of God as much as that is feeding your mind? It's to quicken our conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God. You cannot imagine anything more beautiful than God. And his beauty ought to purge our imagination. It ought to to inform our imagination to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. All this gathered up in adoration, which is the most selfish emotion of which our nature is capable. This is worship. Now, make commentary. I just want to read it to you one more time before we close. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote our will to the purpose of God, and all this gathered up in adoration, adoring Him, which is the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. The most selfless emotion. The idol of self dies when we worship him. The idol of self is crushed when we see him in his glory and see him as the only truth teller that there is. The idol of self is destroyed when we worship and worship truly. Now the song I picked out I want to be our closing prayer. I want it to be, as you sing it, I I don't want you to just think, oh, I'm singing a song that Pastor Scott put on on the screen. I want you to think about it. I want you to say it to the Lord because it's a prayer. It's saying, Lord, be thou my vision. Be my vision. Be what I see. Be thou my vision, O Lord, of my heart. Then it gets a little funky with the old language. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. In other words, nothing else matters except you. Be my vision so that all this other stuff just kind of falls away and I focus on you. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my life. Be thou my wisdom, be my vision, be my wisdom, and thou my true word. I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father, and I thy true Son. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. 
heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Can you pray that this morning? Can you take those little idols of self that have kind of taken over your life and, and, and submit them to the true and the living God, the creator and the redeemer and the sustainer of all that there is of your life? He sustains you more than your wealth. He sustains you more than your health. He sustains you over everything else. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Let's pray together.